and I also want to officially be the first person to welcome my mother, Jenny, who just moved from Joburg to Durban. So welcome, Jenny. Um, I'm hoping that Tubbs is going to give me a thumbs up. Test. Is that the wrong way? Yay. Thank you, Tubbs. Well done. So we've been doing a series on the book of Joshua as a, as a church. It's been about six months. And the book of Joshua is really a segment between the Exodus and and the promised land, or it's uh, the segment I'm going to be looking at, let's say, this evening, is between the Exodus and the promised land. And the book of Joshua, in a nutshell, is the transition from the old to the new. There's a transition from what was before to what will be. There's a transition of old leadership to new leadership, a transition of old beliefs and thinking to new beliefs and thinking. And there's a portion that I want to share this evening, and that is this idea of the desert. And uh, I've called this talk Prizing the Presence of God. His presence is our prize. He is our prize. Um, and this talk actually got birthed out of a very curious uh, piece of scripture in Joshua chapter 5, which I just, it just hit me. And in Joshua chapter 5, we'll get there, but it really just talks about the fact that Moses instructed everyone to be circumcised. Now, we, we have an understanding of circumcision in South Africa. Um, those from America may not have as much an, of an understanding other than potentially the traditional religious understanding from the Bible. And uh, the people of God had to get circumcised to fulfill a sense of righteousness and holiness. It was a sense of consecration. It was a sense of God saying, you're my people and you're different and you are marked. You are forever different. So, so Moses instructs before he died, Moses instructed everyone, you should really make sure that you circumcise all the fighting men. And what's very interesting is that only later does Joshua do this in Joshua chapter 5. So in Deuteronomy, Moses commands it, but he dies. In Joshua chapter 5, he actually does it. But the most interesting thing is that the people that came out of Egypt were all circumcised, the fighting men. So anyone who was of fighting age, I think that's 13 and above in that context, was actually circumcised in Egypt, and they came out. And then a whole bunch of people got born in the desert, and they weren't circumcised because they were free, right? They were out. And yet there was a whole generation that needed to be circumcised, and it's very interesting. So the curiousness of it for me was that God says, or, and we'll get there just now, but there was a specific reason why they had to be circumcised. And so I'm going to leave that cliffhanger for you as we come back later. 
okay, which way is up? Other way. All right, so the basic idea, as you consider slavery in Egypt, can you see that uh, red laser pointer? There we go. Slavery in Egypt, I want you to imagine that that was an era. It was a, uh, it was a set time. It was, an, it was an instituted set of culture and belief and habit and practice. And slavery was so deeply in the, the people of God that they were being absolutely oppressed. They were, they were being completely in bondage. They were being slave-driven. Uh, they were held captive. They were being suppressed. They were being pushed down, and God heard their cries, because even though it was a small remnant of people that actually went into Egypt, they grew to become a powerful nation, and God's always interested in his people, even if it's a remnant that grows, and he heard their cry, and uh, what God did was he actually spoke to Moses, and you can read about it in Exodus chapter 3, and at the burning bush, God actually made a promise with Moses, um, so right from the first time Moses really meets God personally, it's just this miraculous experience. Moses, right from young, knew that uh, he was set apart to be part of his God's people, and he didn't want to actually become like Egypt, and that's why he left for the desert. And so uh, we'll read about that a little later in, in Hebrews 11. But what Moses does is God says to him, you're going to actually lead my people out. And he is not very confident, and he says, I'm not sure what to do, and who's going to go with me? And we know the story. God himself says, I will go with you. And so God gives him a promise, and he actually tells Moses, we're going to go out, you're going to spend time in the desert, and then you're going to receive an inheritance, and uh, you're going to move into the promised land of Canaan, and he actually describes the area and everything ahead of time. It was planned by God. And so they had to go through the Red Sea, and uh, that was a moment where the faith of Moses and the faith of the people was activated in this incredible, miraculous story. And if any of you have seen the, um, uh, the movies and read the accounts, it must have just been awe-inspiring. Uh, I don't know if we can fathom it, actually. Then they were in the wilderness experience, and we know that the wilderness experience lasts around 40 years. Now, we also know that the distance between where they went through the Red Sea and where the Promised Land was should really only have taken about two weeks or so. So what happened between the two weeks or month or 40 days, let's call it, and 40 years? That's what we're going to talk about this evening. And then the Jordan River is the point where the faith of Joshua and the people was activated in such a way, quite similar to the Red Sea, where they parted that river and the waters parted and they went all the way back to a place uh, called Eden, and they crossed over, and then it was suddenly a new thing because we're on the verge of the promised land. 
and taking, the, taking ground. And so, what we see is that slavery in Egypt, if you die as a slave in Egypt, you die in captivity, you die in bondage, and you die in what's represented as sin. It's often a metaphor for sin. Egypt and Babylon and those things are metaphors for sin. Now, what happens if you die in that space? You're not liberated. You're, you're not free. You're not who you're meant to be. You're not uh, an agent that was able to exercise your free will. What happens in that space? Then the wilderness experience is really a place of the blessing of the Lord, and it's also a place where the consequences of unbelief are made known. Incredible blessing of God and incredible consequences for unbelief. Now, if you die in the wilderness, as a whole generation did, including Moses, what happens is you die having been freed from captivity, and yet you don't achieve the fullness of the potential, the promise, the purpose of what God's got, and we call that the promised land. Why the promised land? Because back when at the burning bush, he said, I'm promising you a land. That's why it's called the promised land. And if you die in the desert, you have the consequences of not you know, receiving the fullness of the promise. So what's the promised land? Well, the promised land is the fullness of his plan and destiny for us. It's so many more things than that. But it's the, it's the next step of the fulfillment plan of God in the fullness. And so tonight we're going to be focusing on this portion here, the blessing of the Lord and the consequence of unbelief. And we're going to also be putting it in the context of faith. And so let's go. Oh, and by the way, the best thing about the wilderness is that it reveals the heart. Uh, I was talking to a friend recently, and he, um, he's, actually, um, one of my, he's actually one of my team members in business now, and when he was younger, he got hired by my dad. And the first thing my dad said to him was, have you had a wilderness experience? which is kind of an interesting first question when you meet someone. Uh, and I want to ask you, have you had an, a wilderness experience? Have you had an experience where you feel like you're in the desert, uh, where you feel like, I know that I'm free, I'm, I'm, I'm liberated from Egypt, but what's going on? There's just you know, this, the, the discomfort that I'm feeling, I feel like actually Egypt could have been better. Plus, we've got some sort of magical powers now with God on our side. Why don't we just go back and clap Pharaoh? You know, he actually his army died in the sea. Why don't we just go and take it over? So some commentators say that one reason the, the Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt was because of the the familiarity and the comfort and the identity that they held, they were so deeply imprinted that that's where they belonged. They had grown up there. They knew nothing else but that. 
and yet they had that understanding of who their God was. But the other commentators say that they wanted to go back so they could go and take over Egypt. So they, they didn't, they, they wanted to forsake the promise of God for something that they knew in the past, something that they had as, that was clear and, and tangible to them, something that was a picture for them. And so, have you had a wilderness experience? And have you experienced this tug between the promises of God ahead of me and something that was behind? This, the, and, and the desert place is a place which is a, a revealer of our hearts, and not just our hearts, but our minds and our perception. And so, as we look into this, I'd like us to turn to Deuteronomy, and uh, you could please bring that up for us, Sue. Now, there's quite a lot of scripture here, so, but I'm not apologizing for that because I think it threads through the story. Um, let's see if we're able to bring that up. Okay. Very nice. So, Deuteronomy... And this is chapter 8, and we're going to go into a bit of 9 and some of 10. So the context here is that Moses is speaking, and this is what he says. After the Lord, sorry, be, be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. See the heart? He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Now let's, you can go ahead, Sue, but let's pause there. Manna. Bread. Sugary, honey-like bread. Every day. Out of nowhere. The provision of God. Incredible. Clothes that don't wear out. Amazing. 40 years. That's like long-term clothing, okay, and provision. Next, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. That's a cool land. That's a place where we want to be. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. And uh, you can keep that up, Sue, but... The thing about the wilderness is that it's not always what we thought, but it's good. 
Uh, it's not always the timing that we know of, but where we're going is good. And the wilderness is God's beautiful tool to bring out the things in us that we need if we are to have faith to go forward. And so I found a really nice little summary of some of these ideas and it was on the Desiring God website and it's an article by Matt Brown uh, who's an evangelist and he says God does not always provide and care for us in ways we might expect in this life the Bible does not promise this Peter, James, John and Paul gave their very lives for the gospel they viewed the gospel as a treasure not to be lost at any cost they suffered gladly because they had something in the gospel that had far more worth. This life is fleeting. This life is fragile. This life is but a vapor's breath. The next life, the age to come, is where all God's provision and care for us will ultimately make sense and come together as a whole. We may not receive healing in this life, but we will receive perfect healing in eternity. We may not see answers to our greatest prayers in this life, but we will receive fully in eternity. Some days God's provision and care may seem distant, but it will be ever-present in eternity. We long for our world to stop raging and be at peace, but ultimate peace will only come in eternity. Our hearts ache under the pressures of this life, but it is only because we were made for another world. We are sojourners and aliens on this earth. He's quoting, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we may not understand the wilderness but eternity will bring absolute clarity to it. Whether you die in the wilderness or in the promised land, eternity is the fulfillment of everything that God has done from his story from the beginning of creation to present day because Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the, of the earth. Okay. So he says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and you're satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. In the end it might go well with you. In the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power, and the, well, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. 
and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forgot the Lord, forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Now that word obeying means to hear. To hear actively. To hear and put into, pra into practice. And, and the idea of being destroyed is not that the consequence of disobedience is to be destroyed. It is the idea that the consequence of straying from God's goodness is that we destroy ourselves. That's what he's explaining. So even in that state, under the law, he knew about grace. Okay, next one. Here, Israel, you're now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and you've heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. <laughs> no, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord's going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of the land. So often we think it's about whether we can do things correctly or whether we are upright in the eyes of God or others. That actually is the difference between us going in and not. Moses knew, don't do that. but it's on the account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you're a stiff-necked people. He's saying it's not your righteousness that somehow God is enabling us to go through, because we've had 40 years of grumbling and disbelief and wanting to turn around. And in fact, in Exodus 33, verse 14, and we don't have to go there, Sue, it actually says God wanted to say, Moses, I'm done with these people now. They've pushed me and they've tested me for 40 years. So he's saying, you stiff-necked people, stiff-like inflexible and hard of hearing God God just he almost like just nudged them to say don't keep testing me at this stage because if you do there will be a consequence you're going to miss it and Moses pleaded before God and he was face to face with them and he and he said to him but God you gave me the promise 
And God said to him, it's true, I did give you the promise. And he says this, I will be with you and I will bring you to rest. And so as we consider, thanks, we can go back to the slides. As we consider this picture, what we need to realize is that Did I go back? No? Thank you. Is that the desert experience is actually the most beautiful gift we can have, but we determine how long we're there. And so you might have experienced a desert experience, you might be in a desert experience, you might be in a space, and the thing about the desert is that it exposes these areas. The one is the exposure of the heart. The second is it reveals our needs. Do you know as humans we have needs? We have certain needs that go deep to our core that if they're not present, it's very difficult to survive. You get security type needs and then you get satisfaction needs. We have needs of significance. We have needs of connectedness. We have all these needs. And what the desert does is it exposes those needs. The third thing it does is it reveals that he alone is our source. Because as Moses warned, don't think now that when you've had some success, it's because of you. Yes, you play a role, but it's the gracious hand of God, even when we are completely grumbling and completely not acting and walking in faith, he is good. And the last thing is that he is faithful to his promises, even if we are unfaithful. I keep getting upside down. Are we still good, Tubbs? That's fine. And so, what are the needs that we, that we tend to have? That's good. In fact, I'll just leave it there. When we find ourselves in a wilderness desert-like experience, there's a whole bunch of peas that I've got, okay? I don't expect you to remember them all. But provision, protection, power, peace, purity, personhood or identity. What about promotion? What about position? And as you look at the story of God with these people, he systematically deals with each and every one of these things. Where he says, I am your provider. I am your protector. I am the power that enables you to live and breathe. I am your purity. 
And that's that picture of consecration and, um, and uh, circumcision. I am your identity. And uh, I love the scripture that uh, Melindy shared. And I think it was Psalm, what was it, Melindy? Isaiah 43, which speaks about the sea and the river and that God is in those things. And I think that it's referring to the Red Sea and the Jordan River. Certainly it's an image of that. And it's this idea that I know you by name. And when Moses was called, he said, I know you by name. And he always identifies his people as, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he knows the story of their life. And there's this real sense of identity where they find themselves not in slavery again, but as the people of God again, but with a purpose to come. And so, as God revealed the fact that he alone meets those needs, that he alone can, can fulfill us, that he alone is the provision, what the people realized they had to do was they had to relinquish their own disbelief. Because God miraculously looked after this people in a state that was designed to move them into the next thing, where the real battle started to happen. It was almost like the desert, the, the, the wilderness was like the training ground for the, what was to come. And some people didn't make it. And let's go to the Joshua 5 text. Thumbs up if it's going to come. Wonderful. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites, so this is just after they've gone across, right? The Israelites, until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Now, I've already told you that it's not again, again. It's those that hadn't been circumcised. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeah Haraloth. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. Think about that. Okay? All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. So we've got some at least 40-something-year-olds, maybe 50-year-olds, because if they were 8 or 9 or 10 years old, they wouldn't necessarily have been fighting men. And so they may have been from Egypt before. 
And so the Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age, when they left Egypt, had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And this is the cliffhanger to come. You have the next one, Sue. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day, because Gilgal means rolled. So they had to get circumcised. Why? To roll away Egypt from them. But my friends, they hadn't been in Egypt. They were born outside of Egypt. They were born free. And yet, Egypt was in them. And this is the power of how generations inherit from prior generations. The stories, the beliefs, the mindsets, the habits, the cultures, the worldview. You could call it their wineskin. Their wineskin was one of Egypt. And God had to do something to say, actually no more are you part of that. We need to roll that away. And I even just wonder in our nation, people that have born, been born since apartheid, who don't know it, who don't understand it, who didn't experience it, and yet it's in us. And there's a generation of sons and daughters that are sitting here that are being raised up to roll it away. And there's another something to come if we will believe and not get stuck in the desert. And Glenridge, we're called to that. We're called to be free. We are called to bring freedom for others. And so, I want to read Hebrews chapter 3. And this is in the Passion Translation. Are we good with that, Sue? Yes. Well done. We had a technology failure earlier and we're doing so well. And so dear brothers and sisters, you are now made holy and each of you is invited to the feast of your heavenly calling. So fasten your thoughts fully onto Jesus whom we embrace as our apostle and king priest. 
For he was faithful to the Father who appointed him, in the same way that Moses was a model of faithfulness in what was entrusted to him. But Jesus is worthy to receive a much greater glory than Moses, for the one who builds a house deserves to be honored more than the house that he builds. Every house is built by someone, but God is the designer and builder of all things. It's implying that Jesus is the designer and builder of all things. Indeed, Moses served God faithfully in all he gave him to to do. His work prophetically illustrates things that would later be spoken and fulfilled. But Christ is more than a servant. He was faithful as the son in charge of God's house. And now we are part of his house if we continually courageously continue courageously to hold firm to our bold confidence and our victorious hope. And I'd like us to go to uh, Hebrews 11. In, in Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about the faith bringing us into a, se- into a sense of rest. Now remember the promise that God gave Moses in Exodus 33. He said, I will be with you and I will bring you rest. And let's see the fulfillment of that. Hebrews chapter 11, don't have. I will read it for you. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, 23, faith prompted the parents of Moses at his birth to hide him for three months because they realized their child was exceptional. And they refused to be afraid of the king's edict. Faith enabled Moses to choose God's will, for although he was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he refused to make that his identity. Choosing instead to suffer mistreatment with the people of God, Moses preferred faith's certainty above the momentary enjoyment of sin's pleasures. He found his true wealth in suffering abuse for being anointed more than in anything the world could offer him. For his eyes looked with wonder not on the immediate but on the ultimate, faith's great reward. Holding faith's promise, Moses abandoned Egypt and had no fear of Pharaoh's rage because he persisted in faith as if he had seen God who is unseen. Faith stirred Moses to perform the rite of Passover and sprinkle lamb's blood to prevent the destroyer from harming their firstborn. Faith opened the way for the Hebrews to cross the Red Sea as if on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to cross, they were swallowed up and drowned. What do you think the next thing about faith is left mentioned? 40-something years of silence on, on faith. The next piece is Jericho. Faith pulled down Jericho's walls after the people marched around them for seven days. Faith provided a way of escape for Rahab, and it continues. And then, my friends, it goes on to tell us about those incredible men and women of faith, some of whom excelled in this life because of their faith, and some of whom were killed for their faith in this life. And what this is telling us 
what this is telling us is that even though Moses and so many died in the wilderness in the light of eternity through the incredible redemption grace of Jesus Christ, eternity, faith bears fruit. And they even inherit the promises. So they are credited with faith even though they died and didn't see it fulfilled. They didn't see the promised land. They didn't see the milk and honey. They didn't taste of the fruit. And yet God commended them for faith. Why? Because Jesus Christ in, in uh, history to come would turn all of it around and make the promise come to be fulfilled. And so when we are in the wilderness experience, do we prize the provision? Do we prize the protection? Do we prize uh, the personhood, the belonging, the identity? Do we prize the power of God? Or do we prize God himself? You see, we can only find true fulfillment, true purposefulness, true destiny when we prize his presence and his promise. Because you can't achieve the promise without him. And what we realize is that Jesus Christ is our prize. Jesus Christ is our fulfillment. Jesus Christ is our provision. Jesus Christ is our power. And so, I wanted to just share a practical way of how do we prize the presence of God? Because it's difficult to hear a message like this and wonder, well, so if I find myself in this position, what should I do? And I just want to briefly share a couple of pointers. And it's from Philippians chapter 4. And so as we prize, there's a little four-step I have no idea why it was so many alliterations of the letter P. Uh, I kind of got on a roll. But as we prize God, it starts with perception. Because many of us might be completely blind and deaf to God. And we need to actually open up our spiritual eyes and ears to say, God, if you are present, because that's the promise. The promise is that I will be with you and I will bring you into rest. The promise is that the peace comes from his very presence. And so some of us need to take time just to say, God, will you open up my hard of hearing ears, my darkened sense of spiritual things? Will you help renew my mind that you are present and that you are powerful, that you are provider, that you are my prize? And then it's, it comes to practice it. And we are told to walk out our salvation with fear and trembling and work it out. And we're also told that faith is an ongoing process that, brings, that has fulfillment when 
Christ comes. And so we are, we are meant to practice getting the habits, getting the disciplines, getting the relational health between us and our God, us and our Father, us and our brother, Jesus Christ, and us and the Holy Spirit to a place where we can prioritize him as the prize, where we actually prefer him over the things of the world, over trying to make plans for ourselves, over wealth, over those things, so that we can then participate with him. And so as we prize his presence, his design is that he is so nearby all the time and so available and so willing that at any given time we can access that and we can develop that. And so let's pray. If you wouldn't mind standing. So I'd like to talk us through the Philippians 4 prayer. And I'm sure they'll bring it up, but this is a little bit of practice. In Philippians 4, verse 4 to 7, it's very short, but this is something you can do to develop prizing the presence of God. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Prizing the presence of God is not an intangible thing. It's His very personhood. It's not something that is a transfer of goods. It's him himself. Rejoice in the Lord. And I say again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Not only is he nearby to you, but he's nearly coming back soon again. Do not be anxious about anything. When you're in the desert, when you're in the wilderness, it is usually a very highly anxiety-producing time and state and space. But he's saying, do not be anxious about anything. But by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for us. He said, Father, protect them by my name. He said, Father, I don't ask that you deliver them from the desert. I ask you to deliver them through the desert. I'm paraphrasing. And so I pray right now, that as we approach God and we say, Lord, by your spirit, would you please open our perception to you, your tangible presence. Thank you, spirit of Jesus, that you are available, you are present, 
whether we've known it or not, whether we've walked through the desert, walked through the, the places that there seems to be no life, and yet we look and we see your provision. Lord, we see your, your power in our lives. I pray you'll open our perception again to you, Lord. And now, God, I pray that any anxiety would be calmed in the name of Jesus, that any anxiety would go. And then, Lord, I pray that everyone would have boldness to be able to come to you, first with rejoicing and with thanksgiving, but to pray and petition and commune with you. You're alive. You're living. You're active. You're present. And God, we don't desire the promised land without you. We desire you. And I pray that the revelation of Jesus delivering us from Egypt, from depravity and death, through our wilderness as he conquered in 40 days in the desert and into the promised land. Lord, let the revelation of Jesus be made awakened and burn with a passion in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.